Reading from Ecclesiastes 8, verses 1 through 13. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command, because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Thank you, Laura. I realize that for, for many of you, I'm kind of old furniture around here, but some of you don't know me. I'm Doug Gamble. Uh, my wife, Laura, and I started coming to Cole in the late 1980s. We were here uh, through the 90s, but then in 1999, we took our family, our three kids, and moved to Central America, to Costa Rica, where we ministered for 14 years. Uh, uh, working with international schools, working with uh, helping getting a small church on its feet, and working with Young Life. I came back three years ago as my daughter. We decided she wanted an overseas study program, which meant coming here. And so she attended Cole Valley, uh, Cole Valley Christian School, and I became a teacher here. Love it. It's a great ministry. Uh, but she graduated this last spring, and she is off at college right now. Uh, I'm not so good with that, but I think she's having a good time, so that's all right. I'm, uh, I'm struggling with it a little bit. I miss her. But, uh, but we're, uh, we're, so we're in that process of seeing what's, what's the Lord want for us. And uh, I'm flying down to Costa Rica here in October to interview with a seminary down there has contacted me. We don't know what's going to come of it, but uh, there's a place there where some of the people who are working in the church in Costa Rica have, have some needs for, for training and whatnot. I've been contacted by them. We'll see what works out. I love it here, uh, what the Lord's doing through us, through us here, but we'll see what, what happens, so we'll keep you posted on that. But today we're in Ecclesiastes. Um, when I was in college, uh, the small, I became a Christian in college, and I, the small Christian group I was part of, 
Uh, we used to meet on Tuesday nights at the home of Lee and Colette Court, a couple who just uh, opened up their home to us, to a bunch of college kids on Tuesday nights uh, for dinner and worship and a teaching time. That couple, I remember they helped uh, keep, us, keep us college students kind of grounded. You know, we were college students who sort of knew everything and knew how life was going to work, and they'd been through life. They were empty nesters, and so being in their home helped remind us that we really didn't understand everything. But our college pastor at that time, Brian Morgan, many of you know Brian, uh, made a special arrangement for a special treat for us one Tuesday night, he invited a special speaker. His name was Ray Stedman. Ray was, uh, uh, you know, the first ch- one of the, the head pastor of the Peninsula Bible Church. At that time, he was well-known, uh, really all over the world, as a Bible expositor and teacher and, uh, and publisher of many books. But to us college students, we didn't know really who he was. And so we didn't know what we had in our midst there. Um, for us, he was just a, I think he was about 65 at the time, a white-haired, gentle old gentleman. And if you've heard Ray teach, uh, he's really conversational style, calm and settled. Nothing flashy, but you walked away with a firmer grip on God and passion for him. And uh, to be honest, I don't remember what Ray taught that night. But I do remember the question and answer session afterwards. Actually, I just remember one question. One of my friends there, uh, and I remember it asked a question of Ray, which I remember I thought at the time I was really uncomfortable with the question because it seemed on the border of rude, uh, maybe disrespectful. He said, Mr. Stedman, you've spent many, many years studying the Bible. Be honest with us. Doesn't it just get a little bit boring? I mean, I guess it was a valid question. I mean, we were, how, how can a person spend his life studying one book? We were, uh, we were swamped with books that we were reading at the time and were eager to quit studying. Here, he had devoted his life to this book. And uh, to raise credit, he was not put off, wasn't ruffled at all by the, by the question. He responded, he said, with a kind of a smile and a twinkle in his eye, Oh, no, no, no. On the contrary, don't you see? Now when I open up the scriptures, every page glows with meaning. That was 30 years ago. And that difficult question just was so beautifully responded to by, by Ray. And, but isn't Ecclesiastes full of those difficult questions? They come, there's all sorts of uncomfortable and unpleasant passages in here, just like the one that, the question that that young man brought to Ray that night. Derek Kidner commentator on this says, says of the writer, he says, Wisdom is his base camp, but he is an explorer. His concern is with the boundaries of life, especially with the questions that most of us would hesitate to push too far. But Ecclesiastes pushes those questions. It's an uncomfortably honest book. It's hard to read sometimes for that. But I'll say the older that I get, the more I appreciate that the Scriptures and God doesn't shy away from the hard questions. We're allowed to ask them. Indeed, they're in his own word, like they are in Ecclesiastes. He doesn't shy away from them. He puts them there and says, you, you need to think about this. And, but they don't, you know, God isn't put off by any of those. In fact, I think he relishes it when we come to him with our honest, candid, and difficult questions. I think he relishes it because what it is, it means we engage with him. And that's what he wants. And when we engage with God, he can get the boat of our relationship with him out of the harbor, away from the dock to where he can move it where he wants to. But we need to get it moving. And sometimes those questions are where we need to go, and we shouldn't shy away from those. Ask God those hard questions. 
And in the chapters we're going to look at today, this book that's over 3,000 years old, I think speaks pretty currently and relevantly. There's three main issues, I guess, or themes that he's going to touch on. The challenge of living under human authority, the injustice that runs rampant in our world, and the challenge we have as human beings to figure out what the heck is going on there. Let's pray and we'll get into the text. Lord, we, uh, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, you welcome us as we are with all of our difficult questions, with our frustrations, with our confusions. And that we may not get formulaic answers, but we bring us to a place where we understand you better and trust you more, even if we don't have the, the verbal answer that we might seek. I pray today that your word would just speak loudly to us, and not just speak, but it would change our hearts, transform us by the power of your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The part that uh, Laura read at the beginning of chapter 8 is an exploration of what it means to live under human authority. Of course, this is a particularly timely word today. You know, it's a wise man living under a king, but we're, you know, we're in an election year. So it speaks to us pretty relevantly today, but not just for a presidential campaign or the, the, the men and women we're considering for president, but also for in our office place. We're all under authority in our schools. We all have to face human authority. And if you could encapsulate the message of those first six or eight verses in chapter 8, I think they would be, be careful. As a wise person, be careful as you live under authority. Be careful to submit to his rule or her rule. The idea of oath here is this, this, what citizens pledge to the king uh, or might be the, a contract for us. It's following through obediently to what the king wants in our commitments. Paul tells us that in Romans, right? That, that we're submit to ruling authorities because they prevent chaos. They punish wrongdoing. They help establish order in society. So that's the first thing he warns us to do. Second, he says, don't join forces with those who, out of kind of frustration, conspire in some inappropriate way against the king. He says, don't take your stand in an evil cause. But these are subtle, right? We don't see outright rebellion very much in our day, but we get subtle scurries under the surface at the water cooler at work or in the lunchroom where people begin to speak against our leaders, the leaders, the, the head of our, our whatever it might be. And if that goes too far, it just poisons things. I was at a school years ago where the, the headmaster was frustrated because there was a, one teacher in particular who just... He couldn't be trusted, and he, and he wouldn't say anything positive. And he just poisoned the whole atmosphere. We're not to be part of that, even though it's tempting sometimes, because we can all see flaws in our leaders. But we have to be careful not to do that. He also says there, don't run out. He says, don't be hasty to go from his presence. Don't cut and run. Stay there. Bloom where you're planted. So those are the advice of it. But, but I think there's a bigger picture, because he does tell us why this is so difficult why we chafe and get frustrated with the authorities around us or that we're under. And one of them is found in the last verse of chapter 7 and then in another verse in chapter 8, verse 9. I apologize. The way I'm going through this day, I'm going to ask you to move around in your Bible a little bit. So, it's just, it, so I apologize for that. But the last verse of chapter 7 says, See, this alone I found. God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is an absolutely wonderful one-sentence 
encapsulation of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. God made man upright. He made man in his image. That makes us different than all the other elements of creation. We don't appreciate it enough. That lends us dignity. And it also enables us, as bearers of God's image, that's one of the reasons human beings are able to do the beautiful things that they can do, whether it's create music or artwork or, or, or architecture or build hospitals and organize cities in which people survive and can thrive. These are beautiful things that we can do because we have that creative part of being part of God's, being made in God's image. But of course, that image now is broken, bent, as C.S. Lewis says. Can you imagine? Do you ever, I have done it. I've shot a bent arrow out of a bow. You don't know where that thing's going. That is danger on the fly, right? But when we, because we're bearers of God's image, then what those great things that we can do become horrible things that we're capable of. Also, much more horrible than it is anything else in creation. You don't find anywhere in the animal kingdom where genocide is threatened. But we can do that. The Bible explains the human condition so accurately in that regard. But this explains why human authority is a problem, because we're fallen. We're fallen. Look at chapter 8, verse 9. He says it again. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. When it's just humans over humans, when God is not in the picture, something's bound to go wrong. It's never what we expect. It's never what we hope. Something is always tarnished about it. There's always some kind of collateral damage somewhere along the way. We lived through a, a number of presidential elections during our years in Costa Rica. And I have to say, um, election times there were, I found them really kind of beautiful. People got super enthusiastic about their candidates. I mean, throwing parties and, uh, and, and creating big flags that they would, they would drive down the street with. And election day was particularly just a big fiesta. People were, would march in the streets. They would honk their horns. In those days, you had to dip your finger in a purple ink and you'd put it on your ballot so that to mark that who you were as, as though they were going to check all those fingerprints. But anyway, and you'd march all day with your, you know, your, your finger. I voted, I voted, voted. And there was just all this celebration. The energy was, I liked it. It was really, I mean, it was, it was really beautiful, right? But there's a, I think there was, as I've thought about it, and I think it applies in our culture as well, I think there's a, a kind of a, a dark side to that. Underlying it is almost an idolatry that believes if we could just get the right candidate, if we could just get the right leader and legal system in place, then that would deliver us from all the evils that plague us in society. But that's idolatry. As important and as good as good and godly leaders are, human authority cannot ultimately solve humanity's problems. Of course, the funny thing is that if you talk to these Costa Ricans just a day or two after the election, you'd ask them, and there were six, you know, there were always six parties, so it was crazy. You know, there wasn't just two. And, and, and so you never knew who somebody was going to vote for. Say, well, did your candidate win? Did you, how, how do you feel about it? And it was just a few days after the election, they would say things like, bueno, no importa, todos son corruptos. Ah, it doesn't matter, they're all corrupt anyway. <laughs> you know, it's just like this boomerang kind of thing that the reality hit them after the election somehow. Well, there was even one candidate one year uh, who... Big plaques all around the, the San Jose, the, the main city. Vote for me. His name was Rodriguez or something. And he said, El menos mal, the least bad. 
I'm not saying that applies at all today. But. but Solomon does leave us with verse 6. If we look at chapter 8, verse 6, he says, There's a time and a way for everything. I think he's kind of quietly pointing to the idea that the wise heart will know the proper time and the wise way to handle authority, to respond to human authority. And if we look at the kind of the broad spectrum of the scriptures, we have godly men and women responding in a variety of ways to authority. Jeremiah just got through reading Jeremiah, and Jeremiah tells his people, tells the people of Israel, submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Go into exile. Don't resist him. Sounds awful, but it was submitting to Nebuchadnezzar, of all things. But then in Exodus, God says to Moses, no, we're going to pull him out of there. Pharaoh can't, we're not going to allow Pharaoh to have his way anymore. Daniel? We know the story of Daniel, right? He respectfully declines the king's dietary edicts, and God honored that form of civil disobedience, even to the point of protecting him in the lion's den. Then in the New Testament, Paul tells us in Romans 12, submit to governing authorities. But if you read Acts 5, the apostles were put in jail for preaching about God, and they said, you can't do that. And Peter stands up and says, we must obey God rather than men. See, there's no formula. About the only absolute I can say is that nobody engages in godly civil disobedience in the Scriptures for their own personal gain or for their own comfort. There's a larger picture in mind that they're always keeping in mind. But there is no formula. It's up to each of us to go to God and seek the wisdom that He can give us and the, and the guidance that He gives us and make our own decisions. That's why Cole Community Church doesn't recommend political candidates. And as each of us goes into that tent of meeting with God and comes out with what we think God wants us to do, we need to respect other people's other choices too. Trust that they've gone to seek the Lord for this. And so this is, his, this is Solomon kind of rounding out the wise approach that we have to go to God. This is a living thing, this relationship with God. And we can't just plug it into a formula or to a label. The next issue that the writer deals with, that the Solomon deals with, is the issue... Uh, i got to catch up with where I am here. got to hit myself. Uh, is uh, the one that's presented in chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. He's, war he's, he's frustrated with the injustice he sees in society. Here he sees the, uh, the wicked honored in their burial. And this kind of wickedness is the particularly galling kind. It's the, these people are spiritual shams, right? They're, they're charlatans. They were regulars at the temple or at church, but their spirituality was just a cover-up for their wickedness and selfishness. And those in power either didn't recognize it or they turned a blind eye to it, and so they were still honored in their burial. Um, this reminds me of a story that David Roper used to tell years ago. apologize if you've heard it, but it was about the two brothers in the small town and these were, they were kind of the, they were just the big successful brothers in town. They owned the grocery store. They owned the car dealership. It seemed that everybody had to go through them. And they were not scrupulous. They were unscrupulous. They were scoundrels. And everybody knew it, but you couldn't avoid the brothers. They were Don and Bill. And one day, Don died. And Bill went to the pastor of one of the local churches and said, Pastor, would you do the funeral for my brother? The pastor says, yeah, Bill, I'll do that for you. Bill said, just one thing I want, I want, in your eulogy, I want to make sure, please, please make sure to call my brother a saint. 
pastor says. Come on, Bill. You and I both know you and your brother are scoundrels. You've been cheating people in this valley for years. And Bill said, well, that's pity, Pastor. You know, I, uh, I see that you've got an expansion program started here. Fundraising campaign. I was hoping to give you a nice fat check for that campaign. Pastor looks down, looks around. I'll see what I can do, he says. Comes the day of the funeral. Pastor says, well, today we're remembering Don, and we all know that Don was a cheat and a scoundrel. We all know that he was dishonest. And then we all suffered under his willingness to cheat us. But I do have to say that next to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> back to the text, back to the text. Verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11. He complains about another dis, uh, injustice. He says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Most of us are all too familiar with the delays and inefficiencies of the legal system or of the insurance system, and we suffer because of it. It's not right, right? The wicked seem to get away with their wickedness. And then a chain reaction of corruption occurs because, well, if they're going to get theirs, I am tempted to get mine, whatever it might be. Then there's a similar kind of complaint in chapter, in chapter 8, verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Looks for all the world as though... The righteous suffer the punishment of the wicked, and the wicked get the rewards of the righteous. Then look at chapter 9. I'll just read verses 2 and 3. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who offers, who, who sacrifices, and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil and all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Wow, life's not fair. <laughs> the bad ones come out good, the good ones come out bad, and we all face death in the end. What's the point? This is, the, this is, the, right, this is your Bible, guys. This is, he's, that's what he's saying. These are one, this is one of those uncomfortable kind of passages that, that, that is here, like I referred to at the beginning, the young man brought to Ray. Uh, I think it's important to realize that this is one reason people push God out of their lives or away from their lives. They see injustice and they blame, blame God for it. And it's a struggle we have as believers all the way. I understand it. We feel it every day. But I want us to see something important here because in our frustration and anger with injustice, we're actually bumping up against God Himself. What I mean by that is that everybody wants to see justice carried out. We all value it. Of course, the animal kingdom, the other part of creation, isn't like this. You never see the antelope filing a grievance against the lions for taking out the weak and the young. But we, it really concerns us. There are no societies in which their legal issues and injustice don't become issues. Why? It's because we're made in the image of God, again. Justice is an essential element of God's nature, of His character. And because we're made in His image... It's part of ours as too. And so that's, it's a sensitivity 
to being made in God's image that we're experiencing when we're frustrated with injustice. It's an acknowledgement of the standard that we really know everybody should abide by. We see even hardcore atheists will take a stand against some social injustice or some environmental injustice or some other cause in which they're establishing justice. What they don't realize is that sense of justice they have inside is the fingerprint of God in them and in all of us. And so in some ways, the fact that we are frustrated with the injustice shows us that we know God is involved with this somehow or that he should be and that therefore we acknowledge his existence. Now this whole thing is still bothersome and I'm going to come back to injustice at the end. But I just want us to see that the very frustration with it is evidence of God's standard in our lives and of his image in our lives. The other thing he goes through uh, to, that Solomon discusses in this passage is that is, here's Solomon, the wise man, and we see him again and again, he's frustrated with wisdom. We have a deep need and desire to understand, to explain how things happen. We want to know why something happens. We want to know how life works. And we keep butting up against frustration because it seems like we can't figure it out. Look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 8. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Then go down to verse 1 of chapter 9. But I laid all this to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Then the end of chapter 9 is a long passage in which he discusses all this again. Chapter, and you go to chapter 9, begin with verse 11. Again, I saw under, that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man doesn't know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city and a few, with few men in it, and the great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered the poor man. But I say wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is, not, is despised and his words are not heard. So here's the frustration under the sun with wisdom. Can't figure life out. If we go down here to Barnes & Noble, you'll find dozens of books of people who say they figured it out. That they know how to achieve success. They know how to find meaning in life. They know how to, how to get satisfaction. And here in our country, we have a sort of can-do mentality. We can figure this out. And we do figure a lot of things out. I'll give you that. But the most important things still lay out of our reach. Under the sun, we can't figure out life, and it still catches us. Hardship is unpredictable. It seems to, just, to, to attack indiscriminately, whether it's of health or the economy, the snares of life, as, as Solomon says here. And it's frustrating to him. So we ask, where do we go with all this? I think we need to see Solomon's words as warnings. 
One of the reasons that for our frustrations in this world is that we expect too much from the world. I'm going to say it again. One of the reasons for our frustrations in this world is because we expect too much from the world. Let's face it. You look at what, the, what kind of life Solomon had. He was, a, he was a great king. And think of other kings of old. I'm sorry, we live better than the kings. How many kings had kings of his day or of ancient days had hot and, ro- hot and cold running water? Central heat and air conditioning. Had chariots that could go down pre-smoothed roads at 75 miles an hour. Had medical care that would prolong their life and alleviate lots of pain. Had an incredible variety of food available to them. I'm not even talking about entertainment. I mean, what we've got sort of puts the court jester to shame, right? We live like kings. And in our royal kind of lifestyle, I think we get deceived into feeling that the world really can satisfy us. We can have it our way. We really believe that. After all, so many things do work. So we expect things to work, things to pay off. We expect things to satisfy us. And so then when they don't, we become angry and disillusioned about the things that go wrong, whether they're big or small. But John Piper says, and I like the words, it says, It is a blessing that the things of this world don't satisfy. If they did, we would all become hopelessly addicted to idols. Under the sun, no amount of wisdom is going to take us where we need to go. It doesn't get us there. But I want to look at a better way. And in the same way that the Old Testament writers looked forward and the prophets looked forward to the Messiah, we are on the other side of the Messiah. And I want to look back at this passage through the lens of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for me if you have your Bibles. I just want to talk about a few verses there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'll begin reading in verse 18. Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made, the fo- made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not go, know God through wisdom, it pleased God to save to God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Verse 21 is where I want you to focus for just a minute. Let me read it one more time. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, that is, Christ crucified, to save those who believe. Paul's point is that God, in His wisdom, arranged it that man would not come to know Him through his own smarts, that God wouldn't be able to be figured out by the smart guy. And thank goodness for that. Because I don't know that we would be smart enough. And it would be some kind of intelligence, some kind of cosmic SAT test. Now that's a nightmare if you think about it. Right? Instead, it's learning to trust. The pathway to God is through faith. That's the starting place. The starting place is trust in what God has done for us at the crucifixion. That's where the wisdom that we need begins. Nobody's going to figure it out under the sun. Faith is the only way, and it's a beautiful way to God. There's not going to be any strutting into heaven, like, 
I got it. Yep, I deserved it. It's about time he got me here. None of that. Let me give you a little, I just, this is a word picture that I like that I'm going to give you. It's about a mom, two moms and their two sons and their sons. Scenario one. Mom wakes up on an early, early one morning on a, in August, Saturday morning, and tells her son, it's going to be hot today. Tell you what, I'll go to the grocery store sometime today, and we'll have an ice cream cone when it really gets hot this afternoon. Little boy starts to play and gets to be hot, really hot in the afternoon, and he comes into the house and he looks for his mom. She's upstairs working. Mom! Mom, come on down. It's time for that ice cream. You said we could have ice cream. I'm hot. You said we could have it. Mom comes down. Ice cream's a little hard because it's been in the freezer. She's digging at it. He says, come on, Mom. What's taking so long? She gets the ice cream and she hands it to him and says, finally. And he storms off. Now, we're not going to talk about what the mother ought to do at that moment. But Picture two. Same scene. I'm going to go to the grocery store today and get some ice cream so that when it really gets hot this afternoon, I'll give you, some ice, give you an ice cream cone. This little boy is playing outside. He comes inside. He realizes, whew, it's hot out there. After a while, Mom comes down and says, it's time for ice cream. All oh, right, it's time for ice cream. And she watches the mom scoop it. Mom, I love ice cream. Thank you. I love this. This is Mom, would you make one for yourself so we can have it together? I love ice cream. Thank you so much. This one, it's full of acid. This one is beautiful. The ice cream is a gift. That's salvation. It's a gift. We're just going to say thanks. And it's going to be so sweet. And there's no going to be no chest-thumping, no end-zone dance. It's just going to be, thank you. So it's this faith relationship with God that enables us to be in this world, but to interact with it in the right perspective. Let me develop this just a bit. If we're getting our identity and our love and our forgiveness from the Son, if that vertical relationship, that vine relationship with Him, if we're getting filled up there, then we can move into the horizontal relationships in all the right ways. We don't lean on people or institutions of this world to satisfy us. And so we deal with all of them from a sense of security and not desperation. We don't need to make them into idols or villains. We don't need to extract life from them, but instead can move among those relationships filled with a trusting, abiding in Christ, and so we become givers and not takers. We're not privileged, demanding royalty, but we're deeply thankful servants of a king who provides everything we need. Now, I'm going to ask you to go back to Ecclesiastes. I want to read two more passages there because I think that this helps us to see what Solomon is saying in greater clarity. Chapter 8, he says in verse 15 the following, So I commend the enjoyment of life, because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of their life that God has given them under the sun. Then chapter 9, verse 7 and following, Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningful life that God has given you under the sun. See, when our trust-faith relationship with God is vital and it's growing, we're able to enjoy God's gifts in the way we're supposed to enjoy them. 
without expecting too much of them, without demanding that they be repeated too often or every so often, without shying away from them, without becoming bitter or critical. We can love others dearly, but not with a desperate grip that chokes the life out of the relationship. We can work hard and be dedicated to our work, but the work doesn't have to come to dominate us and control us because our most vital needs are taken care of in our relationship with Jesus. We can be thankful and enjoy our health while it lasts, but not dread the times when our health fails, and it's going to fail for pretty much all of us. We don't have to panic when this tent gets threadbare because God has prepared a much better one for us. When that vertical relationship was there, we don't have those addictions, enslavements. Everything can come into balance. We can have it in its right doses in the right way with the right perspective when we have that vine vertical relationship with Jesus established. Under the sun, human authorities are not what they should be. Under the sun, injustice stands. Injustice hurts. And all this will confuse us and confound us. But we've got to keep front and center in our minds and hearts that there is the most righteous and beautiful authority of all, and his name is Jesus. And you know what? He suffered the worst injustice of all. When he died on that cross, he was taking the sin that causes all the injustices of the world on himself. And so we can know that even as we try to participate in alleviating suffering and injustice in the world, he's more concerned about it than we are, and he ultimately is going to solve it completely. He wants us to move forward, and then he'll move in with us, and we'll see the job done, ultimately in his kingdom. Let's let our roots go deep down and trust his wise way. That cross is where the wisdom of God begins. That frees us then that frees us to enjoy what he has given us now and to move forward in the eternal kingdom work of loving each other. Let's pray. Lord, help us to walk in that, uh, the way of faith, the way of belief. To the outside world, it looks like folly that our Savior should die on a cross, but it is your wisdom. And it brings us to a place of just beautiful thankfulness. And it brings us to a place where we can handle life in the horizontal from the right perspective. We don't have to get angry. We don't have to fall in love with it. We can treat it as it deserves to be treated because we are full of your love. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.